Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayechi, He Lived. The address is Brishit, Genesis, chapter 47, verse 28, through chapter 50, verse 26. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on December 16th of 2005. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher b'achar banu mikol ha'amim v'natan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, welcome to the final Torah portion in the book of Breshit, Genesis. Sefer Breshit is drawing to a close, and with that we'll have our traditional um, blessing for the end of the book. Uh, so be sure to to listen all the way through to the end of the commentary so we'll get a special uh, closing blessing for the end of a, reaching a completion of a Torah study. For those of you who listen by way of Internet to these podcasts, I just want to say a quick word about the written and the audio teachings together. Um, the written commentaries are always available for anyone who wishes to read them. They are available at our website at graftedin.com and along the top of the uh, web page there's a global navigation bar, it's blue. You can click on the commentaries link and that'll bring you to uh, a section where you'll see most of my commentaries. Scroll down to where it says Torah portions, click on that and then you have each section uh, divided by book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then each commentary is listed there as well. You can click on the commentary name, or I believe you should be able to click on the little icon that says PDF, because each commentary is in a PDF document. You'll need Adobe Acrobat Reader or something like that to read each one. As compared to the audio commentary, now that is usually... Uh, updated and made available at the same time each week um, and as when I get ready to mail them out each time of the week. Usually I try and mail these out to you all, the audio version that is. Usually I try to get that mailed out um, earlier in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at the very latest is my preference. However, I do work a full-time job and I have a wife, which is also a full-time job. So uh, not to mention working at the synagogue that I attend 
uh, full-time there, not uh, on staff, but working full-time behind the scenes with the commentaries, the website, um, the leadership training school, and all of the other goings-on that happen there. So I ask that you'll be patient, as sometimes the audio versions may not make it out to you uh, till maybe later on in the week, uh, perhaps even as late as Friday, which I know is pushing it. Uh, going into the Shabbat. But if you absolutely need to get the commentary earlier and you can't get the audio, at least go onto the website and read the written commentary. Uh, as, of course, I'm um, uh, reading the written material and, and um, highlighting the different portions that I feel are pertinent. Okay, So I wanted to say that real quickly before we get started into the study uh, today. All right, let's get into Parashat Vayechi. Uh, if you know, we've been following the life and story of the children of Israel as before they have been enslaved in Egypt. We have followed Abraham and the birth of Isaac and then the birth of Jacob and then, of course, the twelve sons and Dina, the daughter. And then the Torah focused on Joseph, who was a type and shadow of our Messiah, Yeshua. And this week, we conclude our study of the book of Genesis with this parasha, Vayechi, which means he lived. The he, of course, is Yaakov. Jacob lived. And the portion starts out with letting us know that how long he lived in the land of Egypt. Well, actually, we're going to read about the death of Yaakov in this particular parasha. Likewise, our study on Joseph will draw to a close with his death at the end of this book. During the study about the most famous son of Yaakov, I've attempted to show you, the readers, how that the Torah masterfully used his life to portray the life of our Messiah, Yeshua. And in no way did I intend to minimize the significance of Yeshua's divinity by using Yosef as a type and a shadow. In fact, what I've done has been done elsewhere using many other scriptural characters, including a man of whom we shall quickly become familiar with in our next parasha, of course, I'm referring to the man by the name of Moshe, or Moses. I believe that the Torah was written so that we might attain to the goal that Hashem has set forth for us. And what is that goal? Namely, the righteousness that is found when we place our trusting faithfulness in His Son, Yeshua. Remember that according to a proper translation of Romans 10.4, the goal that the Torah is aiming at is our knowledge and placing our trust in the Messiah. That's the goal of the Torah. Moreover, in defining what sin is, the Hebrew word um, it, uh, as it's conveyed in its fullest definition is missing the mark. That's what the word sin means in Hebrew. This is what the Torah is giving to us. These are the reasons that the Torah has been preserved for us so that we can attain to the goal of, of uh, the righteousness of Messiah. And that goal is achieved as we place our trust in him. So as we study the pages of God's Torah, let's not lose sight of the fact that we are to be conformed into his image. There's a, a reference to Romans 8:28 through 29 that I'm making here. And of course... That image is attainable. The Torah does not present to us some unattainable goal. The Holy Spirit helps us to be conformed into the image of the dear Son of Yeshua. So, let's, um, let's look into the Torah. Let's peek into the Torah for these insights, okay? This next section is entitled, The Choices We Make. The aging Israel 
is nearing his death, and he rightly calls for his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in order that he'd like to bless them. And we're all familiar with this. The aging father who's nearing death will bring his sons to his side, to his bedside, I imagine, so that he can give them the uh, inheritance parameters just before he dies. And, of course, typically these were um, words that were spoken to each boy or or uh, tribe member as he is going to move into leadership positions after the father's death. And so it's significant for us as we realize and read through, the, through this uh, portion that the formula, which of course was employed by Israel's father, Yitzhak, uh, this, this is going to be the method, as it were, by which Adonai himself, the Lord, would prophetically identify the destinies of the offspring of Avraham. It's almost as if, I don't know which comes first, whether God instructs the fathers to bring the sons together so that God can prophetically speak through the father to the sons about the days that are going to be following them? Or is it rather that the father or the children of Israel, the people, the nearest in peoples, used this family tradition, as it were, um, and God just utilized it as well? I'm not sure which came first. At any rate, uh, the men were operating under the divine influence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, uh, when they spoke these verbal blessings onto their children, because they are, in fact, prophetic. And to be sure, as we learned in the case of Israel and his brother, Asaph, the verbal blessing was a coveted thing to receive. It was no light manner. So, keeping true to the pattern that Hashem has been displaying, in this particular case, the younger of the two brothers, Ephraim, he receives the preeminent blessing instead of his older brother. Now, that's not according to um, the tradition. The tradition says that the firstborn is to receive the blessing. And so this is why I can say um, unashamedly that the Holy Spirit must have been moving the men to say what they have to say. Because otherwise they're going against uh, tradition. And, that, and that's, that's grounds for upsetting the whole apple cart. But at any rate, Jacob singles out the younger and gives him what we would normally think would be the blessing that is promised for the elder. And as I mentioned as well, this is the third time that this thing has happened. The first being when um, Ishmael and Yitzhak. You know, Yitzhak, the younger, gets the blessing instead of Ishmael. And the second time we read about it in the Torah was when Jacob and his brother Esau get blessed, and Jacob, the younger, gets the blessing instead of Esau. Now, you have to stop and scratch your head and ask, why does Hashem seem to confuse the issue, as it were, by circumventing the older brother. I believe that Hashem wants us, the readers, to realize that, uh, as is taught elsewhere in his Torah, that he can and often does use what we might consider the weak things of this world to confuse that which is wise. The elder is supposed to be older and wiser. The firstborn is supposed to be the recipient of these things. In other words, we normally expect the older to be wiser and more suited to become the chosen one. Yet, Hashem has his way, and he chooses the younger ones to demonstrate his mighty power, displayed through their own weaknesses and seemingly less importance. He doesn't do that all the time, but he seems to delight in displaying his power in doing that. This seems to also be the case as we're going to read about, well, we may or may not read about it in these um, podcasts, but it certainly is the case with the future king of Israel, uh, David. 
In fact, with David, as I'm thinking about it, it's even more to the point with David. Why? Because he's not the second oldest, like it is in these other boys. He's, in fact, the youngest of all his brothers. He's the runt. And God skips over all of his previous brothers and uh, anoints the youngest one of all. So, Israel blesses Ephraim above his brother Manasseh. But he does include both of them in his immediate inheritance. So both boys get blessed. This can be observed in his wording to Yosef in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. So we learn from these verses why Ephraim and Manasseh from this moment on are in fact counted with the other 12 tribes. Isn't that odd? After Joseph, I'm sorry, after after Jacob blesses uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, they don't um, remain as uh, the sons of Joseph. In fact, they become Joseph's brothers, if you think about it. So, they're considered as half-tribes, along with the other brothers. Israel also institutes a well-known formula, I should say well-known to us today. It's used to down to this very day whenever fathers bless their sons. And we read it in chapter 48, verse 20. He predicts that future Israel, the nation will bless their sons, asking Hashem to make them, the future sons of Israel, like these two boys here, in blessing and in good favor. In fact, anyone who has attended a conventional synagogue these days knows that this is the blessing that's spoken specifically for this occasion. May the Lord bless you and make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, fruitful and such. So, here in chapter 49, Israel's sons are the recipients of blessings that directly involve their individual actions. That is to say, um, Jacob remembers what they have done in the course of their life, and the blessing is attributed to them. In essence, um, Hashem, through Israel, blesses them according to what they've done, but simultaneously grants them grace for what they could not achieve on their own. That is to say, God doesn't lay all of their sins at their feet and send the blessing down the pipe because of them. Comparing the above-mentioned uh, blessings of Yehuda with, per se, Shimon and Levi, we can see this. We can see the wording as we see the blessing going down to Judah and Levi uh, correspondingly. In the case of the latter, of, of Levi, with, I'm sorry, of Shimon and Levi, with their blessings, or the lack thereof, they directly point to their prior actions taken during the incident with Dina, their sister, when she was raped. Um, you can read about that in chapter 34 of Breshit. In this story, as we remember, they took matters into their own hands, much to the shame of their father Israel. Uh, 34, 30, and 31 is where we read that. Chapter 34, verse 30 and 31. This caused Israel shame, and so this is reflected in the blessing. Yet in the case of the former, Judah, nothing is mentioned of his shameful actions in chapter 38. Judah slept with Tamar, and this was uh, Jacob's um, uh, uh, handmaid. And yet um, in this uh, uh, blessing here, we don't read any mention of that. And so it's it's odd what Jacob is remembering and what he's not and how Hashem is using that. Still, Hashem seems fit or sees fit to bless him abundantly, uh, Judah that is, by promising to send forth a promised ruler from his loins. We've, we're familiar with this blessing in the church. Uh, amazingly enough, this promise of Shiloh or Shiloh as it's pronounced in church circles 
which is a title or name that has no corresponding Hebrew roots or stems relating to it. This name has been almost universally accepted by rabbis and Christian scholars alike as referring to the coming ruler, the coming Mashiach, or the coming Messiah. And just to prove my point, to show you that I'm not making this up on my own, I want you to observe the opinions of the early Judaism as is preserved for us in their writings. And I'm just going to give a few quotes, all right? Let's see. This first quote is from the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. Now, a Targum is a translation, an early first century translation of the Hebrew into um, Aramaic. Because by that time, uh, the people groups had uh, forgotten lot of Hebrew. Uh, I'm not saying they explu- explicitly spoke or exclusively spoke Aramaic, but Hebrew was a challenge for them, so Aramaic was being used. That's what the Targums are for us. Let's read a quote from the Targum, okay? Quote, Kings and rulers shall not cease from the house of Judah until King Messiah comes. That's a quote from the Targum. Let's read another one, this time from the Midrash Rabbah to Genesis, uh, chapter what is that, 28, verse 8. Quote, Until Shiloh cometh, this alludes to the royal Messiah, and unto him shall the obedience, the uh, yichath, of the peoples be. Uh, he, the Messiah, will come and set on edge, machcheth, um, the teeth of the nations of the world. End quote. And then let's lift and one last quote here from the uh, well-known Talmud, this time the Babylonian version. Um, this is out of Tractate Sanhedrin 98b. The folio is 98b. Um, in the Babylonian Talmud, Rabbi uh, Yohanan said, quote, The world was created for the sake of the Messiah. What is this Messiah's name? The school of Rabbi Shilah said, quote, His name is Shiloh, for it is written, Until Shiloh come." End quote. So you can see there, just from those three um, quotes there, that the ancient sages, the ancient peoples of Israel, read and interpreted this uh, blessing here over Judah as a messianic prophecy. It is not a Christian invention. And yet I know those of you listening to the podcast have heard your pastor mention that this, in, this is in fact a messianic blessing. Well, where do you think they got that notion? They got it straight out of the uh, annals of the histories of the Jews. Okay, let's keep going. Judah receives much favor despite his shameful actions. That much can be seen. So obviously God's grace is at work. We see that the Torah remains consistent when several centuries later a prominent Jewish rabbi, uh, if we can call him that, by the name of Rav Shaul, or Apostle Paul would be how you would know him, um, he would go on to explain that Hashem will have mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy on, and compassion on whomever he chooses to have compassion on. You can read that in Romans 9, verses 13 through 16. Obedience and disobedience. The Torah is full of blessings and curses based on our dynamic interaction with God. And if we will recognize that, how much more will that motivate us to be um, obedient children? I wish to take the time we are, uh, while we're still earlier in the the Torah studies, um, I wish to take the time to deal with the scriptural topics of covenant and commandment. And this is going to pave the way to better understand our upcoming studies in the Torah in Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, as is our next parasha. Um, 
the Torah becomes a national constitution for the nation of Israel as it's given to them on Mount Sinai and God um, spells out how they are to walk in his ways and to walk out covenant faithfulness and so while we're here let me just uh, give a, a, a maybe a, pre, a sneak preview of what we're going to be dealing with all right this next section is entitled covenant and commandment in Hebraic thinking the term covenant is synonymous with the term commandment and so when we hear covenant and we hear commandment they are they elicit similar uh, responses from a Hebrew thinker the reason is because um, the way the Bible uses these terms and concepts they are interwoven in such a way as to render them inseparable to speak of the covenant is to speak of the commandments now I say commandment in singular because um, the whole book is one giant commandment to love the Lord and to obey him but um, and that is the covenant so if 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 an Israelite were to break the covenant then it is spoken of as if he's breaking the commandments and and vice versa so some people might say can my postulation be substantially uh, be substantiated scripturally I think it can so let me read on and see if you'll be convinced as well in ancient suzerain treaties uh, these are treaties between two peoples um, we had a um, uh, a ruler or a leader who would maybe conquer or subjugate a lesser people and make them his vassal make them his his uh, subject his um, his uh, property as it were and in these particular treaties in the near in the ancient Near East um, if if the situation changed for one party of the two a covenant could be amended or renewed as it were to adapt to the new circumstances but only what was what would no longer fit between the two parties would be revised everything else remained in effect exactly as before and so um, God is the ruler the uh, king who makes a covenant with his subjects the children of Israel and as time goes on if the children of Israel um, if, if the dynamics of them changed a bit for instance let's say they went into slavery and then they came out of slavery or such then um, the covenants could be amended or if they were repeatedly w wicked the king could uh, rewrite the covenant as it were um, amend it a bit to change the situation or change uh, and adapt to the situation the situation as it were between the two parties the covenant itself remained in effect they, they God never broke the covenant between them but uh, Israel needed the adaptation because they repeatedly broke their side of the covenant. You all know what I'm talking about because you're familiar with biblical history. So when we take these facts and look at the Mosaic covenant that's about to be cut at Sinai here in the upcoming book of Exodus, we have to ask ourselves, was there something wrong between the parties of the existing or previous covenants that, necessita uh, that necessitated a renewal on God's part? Did um, God change or did Israel change? Let's read the passage for the answer. I'm going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 32. I'm going to read this out of the Revised Standard Version. Quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We've heard this language before. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. End quote. So we read right away that God cuts the covenant with Israel 
after he brought them out of the land of Egypt, brings them to Sinai, of course. He cuts a covenant with them. He enters into a treaty with them. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Yet, looking back down through the lens of history, the prophet Jeremiah reminds us that Israel was faithless and broke covenant with God. Therefore, God is going to renew that covenant with his people because of the repeated violations of the covenant. Scripture goes on to describe that Hashem found fault with them, that is to say, with Israel. So, you have to ask, how did they break the first covenant? Well, the answer is simple, by not keeping the commandments. Now, obviously, they didn't have faith, otherwise they would have kept the commandments. So, someone might say, Ariel, they broke the covenant by not having faith. But in Hebrew language, or in Hebrew thinking, when lack of faith is, dem- is, is present, then um, commandment breaking is also present. Observe. Let's to pull another quote out of the uh, prophets. This time I want to read from, I'm sorry, uh, from the Torah, that is. This time I want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 14. Again, out of the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. Quote, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. The writer of Deuteronomy, Moshe, goes on to say, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, there's our uh, a connection there between covenant and commandment, to a thousand generations, and requits to their face those who hate him by destroying them he will not be slack with them. I'm sorry, he will not be slack with him who hates him. He will requit him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the ordinances which I command you this day. And because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them, there again is our link, the Lord your God will keep you with the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers to keep. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. And the final verse says, You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. End quote. So, that is lifted from Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. And we see quite explicitly that the language of covenant and commandment are interwoven with one another. Now, um, so someone may ask, Ariel, are you suggesting that mere commandment keeping is tantamount to covenant faithfulness? As I've said before, in Bible times, um, it, it all it took to be found righteous well, let me just ask the question, because I know that's probably what you're thinking. Are you saying that in Bible times, 
that all it took to be found righteous in God's sight was to just keep his commandments? I, I'm not trying to suggest that it's mere commandment keeping alone. So before I get labeled as a legalist, let me demonstrate God's view of true commandment keeping, not merely mechanical commandment keeping. I'd like to use a quote this time from some friends of mine, Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz. They are the authors of Torah Rediscovered. First Fruits of Zion published this book back in 1996. I want to lift a quote from page 32 and 33. Quote, For those who trust Hashem for the promises, the proper order for faith and obedience is set by the sequence in which the covenants were given. In other words, faith must precede obedience. But the kind of faith accepted by Hashem is one which naturally flows into obedience. True obedience never comes before faith, nor is it an addition to faith. It is always the result of true biblical faith. To rephrase this in terms of the covenants, the covenant of promise with Abraham must come before the covenant of obedience with Moshe. If we were to put Moshe first, attempting to secure those promises by obedience, we would be going against Hashem's order. This, by the way, is the key to unlocking the difficult midrash used by Paul or Shaul in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. All we could hope for would be a measure of physical protection and a knowledge of spiritual things, but we could not achieve or not receive justification or a personal relationship with the Holy One through obedience to the Torah. It all had to start with faith. Avraham came before Moshe, but Moshe did not cancel out Avraham. The two complemented each other, as long as they came in the proper order. End quote. So, based on what um, Ariel and Devorah are teaching us there, we see that commandment breaking was the reason that God needed to renew the covenant. Commandment breaking, or other words, covenant breaking. In a sense, when Israel walked away from the covenant, when she forsook the commandments of God, she was declaring to God that she had no interest in him, and ultimately this unfaithfulness was seen as grounds for divorce. And now I'm using a very strong word, divorce. You, uh, you'll definitely have to get proof that God divorced Israel because um, even before I came to the harvest back in 2000, I would never have thought um, that God divorced Israel. I just wasn't familiar enough with the uh, passages on, on my own. But I've since done some research, and, uh, and I'll give the passages to you here right now. Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. In that passage, you'll have to go back and read it on your own, but in that passage we observe that the faithful husband, Hashem, is seen promising the unfaithful wife, who is Israel, reconcilement unto himself after a brief period of rejection. This brief period of rejection is found in verses 7 through 8. Why did God reject her? Why? Because she willfully walked out of the covenant agreement in order to pursue alien love, causing Hashem to act in accordance with his very own Torah, his very own law, and do what? Give her a bill of divorcement. You can reference Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where God instructs that the hardened, may, uh, um, the hardened mate uh, uh, is given a bill of divorcement because of that. 
We can also reference Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In this passage, we see that God is the husband and Israel is the wife. Verse 1, the first part, verse 1a, reinforces what Moshe stated in Deuteronomy. Verses 1b through 7 show that the unfaithful bride, Israel, did not remain pure, but adulterated with another lover, spurning the sorrow and the fury of her first husband, Hashem. And in verse 8, after desiring her to return to him, Hashem instead hands her a bill of divorcement, a get. And this is based on her refusal to remain a faithful bride to him alone. She refused to be faithful to him. And so in verses 11 through 15 of this passage, the faithful husband, Hashem, pleads with his unfaithful wife to return to him and find forgiveness, because he will grant her forgiveness if she returns. But instead, she persists in her adultery. Thus, the unfaithful bride walked out on the marriage covenant to pursue other sexual interests, causing the faithful husband to what? Write her a bill of divorce. Did Hashem wish to write her this bill? Well, according to Genesis, he desires unity for eternity. But, as we read, sadly, hard-heartedness drove his wife to force, as it were, God's hand of divorce upon her. So, we see who's at fault. That's why Jeremiah can say, finding fault with them, she, Israel, willingly left God. He, God, always remained faithful, waiting for her to return. And in fact, God will and did woo Israel back to himself and uh, renew the covenant with the renewed um, vows that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Does it make sense to us now as we begin to read down through the Torah? I know it confuses a lot of students as they say, well, God left Israel and therefore God has not um, uh, taken a bride since he left Israel, or some say that God took the church as his new bride. No, 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 no. He is, in fact, renewed his vows to Israel through the renewed covenant, and, in fact, we see the inaugurating of this betrothal, uh, renewed covenant, as it were, to the Gentile side of Israel with the coming of Yeshua. Let's move on. This next section is entitled Covenant Status, Earned or Freely Given? So, those of you listening to my podcast might ask yourself, is covenant status something that we can earn on our own? Is it that Israel would needed to um, push or press into the relationship and, in fact, um, get this, or I should say, reclaim this covenant status that they lost of theirs? Or is this something that um, uh, God has in control? Is there a commandment Israel might have thought that we can keep that will turn God's hand in our favor? And those listening to the podcast today might ask the same question. Is there something I can do to get God's favor? How can I be a covenant partner with God? You know, religions the world over have tried to solve this problem. How do I get God's attention? What can I do to be in covenant with God? We affirm in the church and in um, in the remnant, I should say. I use the word church there loosely to mean the remnant of Israel. But we affirm that there's nothing that we can do to earn covenant status. It is not earned. God freely bestows covenant status upon those who, what? Surrender to his salvation-working power. The power of the Spirit of Messiah Yeshua himself, who is, in fact, the Savior of Israel and the Savior of the whole world. 
Some might argue that grace is all we need in that scenario. Grace, grace, God's redemption at Christ's expense, grace is all we need. For them, for people who might champion this view, that grace is all we need, for them, a Torah does not even figure into the scenario. So, presents a problem for people like me. What shall we Torah keepers say then? Where does the Torah fit in? Well, here at the end of Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, allow me to recall some words from a previous parasha in answer to that question as to where does grace fit in and what shall we Torah keepers do. Let me lift a quote from one of my previous commentaries. I think this comes from, let's see, from Parashat Vayera. Okay, let's lift a quote. Quote, what made Avraham such a great role model of faith is that not only did he trust in the word of Hashem, but the Lord saw into his future and predicted that his offspring would also be taught how to trust in the Almighty. And then I go on to pull a quote from Genesis chapter 18 and verse 17 and 19. Quote, Adonai said, should I hide from Avraham what I am about to do? Inasmuch as Avraham is sure to become a great and strong nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him? For I've made myself known to him, so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Adonai and to do what is right and just, so that Adonai may bring about for Avraham what he has promised him. The emphasis on the so that's are mine. End quote. This, if we look at it and let it sink in, is a fantastic statement from the mouth of whom? The one who sees every human possibility. Would that we today might have Hashem pronounce his blessing over our families. So, what must we do to be the divine recipients of the promises of Hashem? The divine tandem-like action spoken of here in this verse must not be taken too lightly. So let's go back and mind them, all right? Firstly, God promises to be faithful to make himself known to us. That's what it says in the verse. We, like faithful Avraham, are then enabled by that relationship and subsequently covenant-bound to obey the teachings of our Heavenly Father. Finally, such teachings are uniquely designed to bring about a righteous behavior in our lives, aligning our lives to be the object of God's righteous promises. Now that sounds far-fetched, but if you read the verse, that's exactly what the syntax of the, the, of the pasukim, of the verses, are hinting at. The very reality, and you have to go back and look, note the running continuity suggested by the connecting phrases, so that, that's why I kept saying that, uh, uh, emphasizing it. Uh, so that's, um, help us to understand that that as God presents and relates to us and makes himself known to us, he gives us his covenant um, sorry gives us his commandments and the power of the spirit to walk out his covenant so that we can be faithful to him and in turn he will bless us as we are faithful to him. Furthermore, we must, like faithful Avraham, trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that he has given us through Yeshua, our Messiah. And today we have a sure promise, a sure word from the Lord himself. What is that word? Let's read it. It's in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Quote, Furthermore, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with his purpose. Because those whom he knew 
in advance, he also determined in advance, would be conformed to the pattern of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he thus determined in advance, he also called. And those whom he called, he also caused to be considered righteous. And those whom he caused to be considered righteous, he also glorified. End quote. See the tandem-like qualities of this promise? The Apostle Paul is stacking these good uh, um, uh, uh, promises up in this verse. And they all work together. You know, when we read that passage, Romans eight twenty-eight, we usually stop at the first verse. But reading further informs us of our true identity in Messiah. What is that identity? Righteous heirs according to trusting faithfulness, causing us to be called, as faithful Abraham was called, righteous. Amen? Amen. I like to imagine that grace, what we talked about earlier, where does grace fit in? Grace steps in when we misunderstand the Torah as a document of legalism, because we as men prone to, are prone to misunderstand God's gracious words. Yes, legalism. Not all who approach God approach Him correctly. Not all understand His gracious ways, even though He is reaching out in grace and in love. Mankind, as we find out, has a human tendency to pervert God's gracious document into something it was not meant to be used for. To be sure, we know this, we know this. The Torah cannot in and of itself bring to the goal the participant and his conscience. You can reference 1 Corinthians 2.14, Galatians 3.21, the second half, as well as Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11-19. through 19, And you'll see that the Torah doesn't bring the recipient to the goal. In fact, let me use a rabbinic um, logic here. I'm going to use a rule known as Kalvachomer. Okay? It's an argument drawn uh, along the lines of light and heavy or light and heavy, an argument from a weighty premise to a less weighty premise. Um, if actually participating in the sacrifices of ancient Israel, like they are going to do in the book of Exodus follow and forward, if actually participating in the sacrifices could not bring about covenant membership, then surely all attempts to follow Torah today will ultimately result in failure without regeneration from the inside. We know that it won't work under human power. It has to be done, covenant faithfulness, covenant membership, has to be achieved, as it were, by God's faithfulness and by God's drawing us from the inside. Let me lift a quote from the book of Hebrews, or it's alternately known as the book of Messianic Jews. At least it is in David Stern's version. Let me read a quote from chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Quote, For the Torah has in it a shadow of the good things to come, but not the actual manifestations of the originals. Therefore, it can never, by means of the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after uh, year after year, bring to the goal those who approach the holy place to offer them. Otherwise, wouldn't the offering of those sacrifices have ceased? For if the people performing the service had been cleansed once and for all, they would no longer have sins on their conscience, end quote. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us explicitly that the Torah, as is seen in the sacrificial system that's going to be coming up, did not bring the person to the goal. The old teaching that the Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the sacrifices and keeping the commandments holds 
no water. The people in the Old Testament, if I could use that term, were saved the exact same way that we in the, quote, New Testament are saved. How is that genuine trusting faithfulness in the one who gives the covenant to begin with? Who gives the commandments, I should say. It is, in fact, only the Spirit of the Holy One writing the Torah on the heart and mind that can bring about the intended goal, that can bring the participant to the intended goal of what? Surrendering to the Mashiach. With our natural mind, we read the Torah. We read, do this and don't do that. And we men have a tendency to misunderstand the grace behind the words. We see what God is telling us to do, and yet we don't understand. Yeshua came to us to explain the gracious intent of every single command by explaining the primary thrust of the Torah in the first place. And what is that primary thrust? Leading its readers to a genuine, trusting faith in the Messiah found therein, namely himself. Moreover, since we're on this topic of grace, grace is in fact needed when sin blinds our eyes to believe that the covenant status that we so uh, 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 longingly want and hope for is granted on the basis of ethnicity, whether natural or achieved. Now, I'm entering into uh, uh, um, a topic that some of you probably are not familiar with, to be sure. So, let me just introduce you to it. Historic Israel of the first century genuinely believed, by virtue of being born Jewish, that they were automatically guaranteed covenant status. What is more, from their point of view, if someone from non-Jewish stock wished to join the covenant people, all he or she needed to do was what? Convert to Judaism. Hence, my use of the terms natural and achieved, respectively. The natural Israelites, those native-born, held to the prevailing theology that Israel was given to maintain the covenant status already acquired at birth. They held to this idea that because they were Jews, they were in fact covenant members, and as a covenant member, the Torah was given to them. And so they had to maintain covenant status that they achieved by being born Jewish. Um, the stranger, the alien, the ger, which is the Hebrew term for stranger, uh, or proselyte, as you might read it now. He was deemed as someone in the process of becoming a Jew via the vehicle of his very proselytic conversion. This was the problem in the first century, people. We're going to hear more about this in later teachings of mine, but if you can't wait for me to give it to you, go ahead and go to our website again, um, graftedin.com, click on the commentary section on the top, and this time, go to the more lessons, and you can read more about this in, say, my exegeting Galatians commentary there. Um, it was because of this error in their theology that Rav Shaul went to great lengths to refute such teachings in his letters, both to the Romans and to the Galatians. To be sure, if we apply this hermeneutic, that this was the problem that Paul was addressing, if we apply this rule to those letters instead of adopting a grace versus law hermeneutic, then the apostle begins to make more sense theologically and historically. Now, as I study this, I'm convinced more and more now than ever that a foundational understanding of Paul's writings must take into account the historical fact that the first century Israel reckoned herself as righteous or right standing before Hashem on the basis of ethnicity.
and we read that as being Jewish when I say ethnicity. They, they reckoned herself as righteous on this status alone. It was not as if she felt that she had to keep the Torah uh, to become righteous. She did not feel that keeping the Torah equaled positional or forensic righteousness. Do you understand that now? She concluded, albeit incorrectly, that keeping Torah was the vehicle that one used to maintain covenant status already achieved either at birth or by conversion. So, in her eyes, she did not keep the Torah to become saved. She kept the Torah because she was already saved. And that language is very important because she did not wield the Torah as some simple tool that brought her or earned her covenant status. She felt that she was already a covenant member just by being Israel or just by being Jewish. And the part that's hard to sort out as you're listening to this podcast is that much of her viewpoint stems from genuine truth. And we'll have to look at that a little later on. So, let's move on. What are the conclusions to my commentary today? This next section is titled, Covenant Status and the Promise. In closing, we affirm with perfect faith that genuine and lasting covenant status is granted to the individual who eventually exercises genuine faith in the promised word of Hashem, namely the Messiah Yeshua. He is the promised word of Hashem made flesh. Such status is offered freely by God to both Jew and to Gentile. Jewish people, let me explain this, listen very carefully. Jewish people with natural lineage tracing back to Yaakov are in fact born with a quote, corporate covenant status, in uh, quote, given freely by God and based on this promise, God's promise that he made to Avram. Jewish people who trace their lineage back to Jacob are in fact covenant members. However, this does not automatically grant them the status of right standing in a positional sense. They are covenant members on a natural level or on a national level. There is no such thing as what I like to call involuntary corporate righteousness in the Torah of Hashem. You're not automatically a, a, a positional a righteous person. For the native-born Jewish person, the proper sequence for the covenants is demonstrated when such an individual graduates or matriculates from mere corporate faith and belonging towards personal faith in God. They go from being someone who is just in the covenant on a natural level to becoming someone who is a covenant member on the inside as well. That's why I use the term graduates. They must graduate towards belonging uh, towards uh, personal faith in God. To be sure, it is only when God does his monergistic work of opening the eyes of the blind and drawing the individual into his covenant of faith that the person attains genuine and lasting covenant status. The kind of covenant status that is worthy of a place in the Olam Haba, the age to come. That is the way that the covenants are spelled out. That is the way in which God envisions an individual coming in to genuine covenant faithfulness. The Jew and the Gentile find their covenant status exactly the same way, trusting faithfulness in the word of Hashem. Jewish people were born into this covenant on a natural sense, but that did not guarantee them automatic righteousness. 
They must listen and surrender to the word of the Lord and to the spirit of the Lord if God was to write his Torah on their hearts. Lasting covenant status is spoken of in the Torah as gaining a place in the age to come, the Olam Haba. Today we simply use the term heaven and uh, church uh, leaders and and pastors and missionaries go to great pains to explain to people the world over that the only way that you can make it into heaven, as it were, is by putting your trust and faith in Yeshua. And that is the right message. But don't misunderstand me here. The Torah is written on the heart of the individual who places his trust and faith in Messiah Yeshua. And therefore, as a covenant member, he is binding himself to God, the covenant giver, to keep his commandments, to keep faith in the covenant. That is our responsibility. So, in closing, let me just say it this way. What place hath the Torah in the life of an individual who has surrendered to Yeshua? Where does the Torah come in? I'll answer for you. The Torah comes alongside of the promise or of covenant status that they are given. And it acts, it, the Torah, acts as a guarantor that the individual will also achieve behavioral righteousness, thus placing him or her on a direct collision course with the blessings of Hashem. That's where the Torah comes in, people. The Torah doesn't save you. It never did. It never will. It's not designed for that purpose. It does, in fact, come along as the very promise that God gives to saved individuals that as they ally themselves with God's words and God's ways, that they become the recipients of the promises that God has made with them through His Son, Yeshua. So, far from frustrating the grace of God like modern theologians want to tell us today, the Torah does not frustrate the grace of God. The Torah is not against the grace of God. It's not law versus grace. No, in fact, the Torah complements the grace of God. It works in tandem with the grace of God. Isn't that good? I'll just leave it there, because in the weeks to come, I shall elaborate on this most wonderful truth as it flows from the never-changing pages of God's Word. With that, let's draw our study of Vayechi to a close and our study of the book of Genesis. It's customary in Jewish circles after the completion of a book of the Torah to say, quote, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazek, which being interpreted is, Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. Amen? Amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher natan lanu torat emet vechaye olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. The translation is, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Have a wonderful and blessed Sabbath. So I say unto you at the end of the study, Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, 
Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua, through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>